But the people born in that 40-year wilderness wandering had not been circumcised. So verse 6 tells us that all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt died since they had not obeyed the Lord. So the whole adult male population, every last one of them, which was circumcised when they left Egypt, died in the wilderness for their disobedience, the text says. There's a range of wilderness acts of disobedience. And for that, the whole generation was judged to wander and eventually die in the wilderness. It's a telling lesson. And it applies to us. Paul applies it to us in 1 Corinthians 10 where he speaks of this circumcised generation. And he says, they were all baptized into Moses. That is, they were all publicly identified with Moses as their deliverer when they crossed the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses, Paul says, in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Nevertheless, the apostle says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased and they were laid low in the wilderness. And so it's possible to have grand experiences, Red Sea-like experiences, and to have all the signs of the covenant, circumcision, baptism, public identification with Moses, to eat manna from heaven, spiritual food from heaven, and yet to be fundamentally displeasing to God. Church membership, the sacraments, these are necessary, wonderful, and divinely commanded things, but they are not magic. They will not save us without an obedient faith. And the whole adult population of the wilderness generation testifies to this. For they had all these things. And in the midst of of their overall disobedience, we learn that this generation, themselves circumcised, failed. They failed to circumcise their children. And so the text says there in verse 6, in the middle of that verse, the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land. This land of milk and honey that He had solemnly promised to their ancestors. Circumcision and the land belong together. Circumcision and the land belong together. You might remember back further in the Old Testament, Moses was called to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And in the early chapters, in Exodus chapter 4, he has this terrifying encounter with the Lord who threatens him with death for not having his son circumcised which, through the help of his wife, he quickly remedies. But that same drama is being played out here with Moses' successor Joshua. Only this time, there's a whole generation that's uncircumcised. And so the wilderness generation is dead. And verse 7 tells us God raised up their sons in their place, and these are the ones Joshua circumcised. We learn another, I think, very important lesson here. And it's this. 
the unfaithfulness of men will never, ever nullify the faithfulness of God. Your disobedience cannot do it. My disobedience cannot do it. All of our disobedience collectively cannot do it. The total disobedience of the whole church across a generation cannot do it. The total disobedience of every professing Christian in the world for many generations cannot do it. God is the sovereign covenant Lord and He will fulfill His purposes. He can wipe a whole generation of Christians out and start over if He needs to. He will give the land to His people. But the promise is not a magical charm. He will fulfill it by raising up a faithful and obedient people. But no amount of Christian disobedience, however great, can thwart or nullify the purposes of this God. And here he raises up the sons of a disobedient generation, and these are the ones, the text says, that Joshua circumcised. So, it's important for us to grasp the profound significance of circumcision. It's clear from this text that God doesn't take it lightly. In fact, in giving the sign to Abraham, God says that the one who is uncircumcised that is, who refuses to cut off the foreskin, is cut off, God says, from the people of God. So clearly, this is no empty sign. This is a sign and a seal of the Abrahamic covenant, and thus of belonging to the people of God. And even in the Old Testament, circumcision points to this inward need to circumcise our hearts. To cut off the old man. To put sin to death. To live in newness of life unto God. This is why the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, for example, can say to Israel that they're stubborn. And and Jeremiah can say to them, circumcise your hearts, O Israel, and not just your foreskins. So it, it points to this interior separation from sin and union with God. And it points forward, as Paul teaches in Colossians, to Christian baptism to your death and resurrection to new life in union with Jesus. And this is why circumcision is the key to laying hold of the land. No circumcision, no land, no inheritance. And so finally, the nation circumcised in verse 9. God tells Joshua, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the place is called Gilgal, which sounds like the Hebrew word for roll. And so the mocking of Egypt and the scorn of the nations are rolled away by this act of obedience, Joshua's act of obedience. Circumcision, like Christian baptism, removes judgment. And like baptism, it's done once and for all time. It's the sacrament of initiation. It's the sacrament of definitive cleansing. And like baptism, it calls us to live out the life of obedience that we might possess the land that God has promised to his people. So the second point here, that's circumcision. The second thing is Passover. The Israel here celebrates, as their calendar dictates, on the 14th day of the month, Israel celebrates the Passover. So think about this. There's a clear order here, isn't there? 
Circumcision, then Passover. The sacraments are not random, they're ordered. And they're ordered to one another. Just as it is for us in the New Testament. Baptism, then the Lord's Supper. The one-time sacrament of initiation leads to the continual renewal of the meal of the Lord's table. Now, when Israel celebrates the Passover here, we can see that this partaking of it is the beginning of inheriting the land. The text tells us that the day after the Passover, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. And the point is that this is the initial fruit. This is the first fruits of the produce of of the land of Canaan. This is the down payment. The foretaste, the first tasting of their inheritance. The miraculous manna, which had been with them through the wilderness, it stops now. And they eat the regular, ordinary fruits of the land. And the ordinary stuff... Every bit as much as the manna is the provision of God. There's a, there's a wonderful story about loving God's ordinary, regular gifts. His ordinary provinces as much as perhaps the more spectacular or miraculous things. Uh, and it comes from John Witherspoon. Witherspoon was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And he was the president of what was then called the College of New Jersey. It is now Princeton. And he used to ride his horse and his rig into work a few miles each day. And so he gets there one day, and a neighbor at the college, a person in the office next to him, comes in excitedly and tells him this, Dr. Witherspoon, join me in giving thanks to God. As I was riding in today, the horse ran away and the buggy was smashed to pieces on the rocks, but I escaped unharmed. And Witherspoon replied, why, I can tell you a far more remarkable providence than that. I have driven over that road hundreds of times and my horse has never ran away and my buggy was never smashed and I was never hurt. See, the sustaining grace of God is every bit as glorious as the delivering grace of God. (laughs) And the ordinary providences are every bit as wonderful as the extraordinary providences. And the fruit of the land of Canaan is as magnificent as the manna. In fact, the manna was meant to lead to it. And so God is not only the God of the manna and the wondrous signs, He's the God of the living providential God of the little ordinary gifts of life. They are all His works for His people. And this is why we cherish, especially in this tradition, what are called the ordinary means of grace. The Word, the sacraments, prayer, worship. We love ordinary stuff. And the ordinary means of grace in view here in this text is the Passover. For us in the New Testament, the Supper of the Lord. The Passover points forward to the Supper. And that Supper points back to the Exodus. Back to our Exodus from the bondage of sin and forward to Canaan, to our inheritance. 
So in the supper, which we are to celebrate today, in the bread and in the wine, the Lord gives you the first fruits of the land of Canaan to taste. This is a foretaste of the coming wedding supper of the land of the Lamb in the new creation. That's what we are doing when we have the supper. What happens there is that the manna from heaven, Jesus Christ, is made permanent and ordinary and regular for the people of God. So that you might be nourished and inherit the land. And the third point then is the holy land. And that's in... uh, Verse 13. Verse 13, Joshua is out on some kind of personal reconnaissance mission near Jericho. He encounters a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. And he asks him this remarkable question. Reasonable, given that you would ask an armed stranger this before a war if you encountered one. He says, are you for us or for our enemies? But it's the wrong question. The reply comes in verse 14, neither. So this is not a soldier. Not just another combatant. This is the commander of the army of the Lord, the text says. Not that Joshua's command is being revoked. This figure commands the heavenly host, the celestial army of the Lord God, who fight with and for Israel. And he has this drawn sword, which is the sword of judgment. It's, in fact, judgment, which through circumcision and Passover, Israel has just been delivered from. And which sword will now purge the land and give it to the people of God. Salvation is always through judgment. So Joshua falls down in reverence, and he's not rebuked because this is what we call a theophany, a God appearance, an unveiling of the Lord God. And this figure is inseparable from the Lord who promises and who gives this land. And so Joshua, like Moses, is told, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy, and he does so. And so it's the fiery presence of, of the Holy Lord of hosts, the warrior God of Israel, the one enshrined in the ark who makes this land holy. And as holy, the drawn sword of the Lord will execute holy vengeance, evicting evil and idolatry and corruption from the land and giving it to the people. The Holy Lord who gives the land its holiness leads his people in holy war. We could put it this way. Holy Lord means holy land and holy Lord and holy land means holy war. Now I know a few of you, maybe more than a few, are uncomfortable with this holy war terminology which I've been using throughout the book of Joshua. I've had a few people request or ask some questions about it. I promise you that two weeks from today, Lord willing, we'll address nothing but this question. The the sermon two weeks from today will be about 
things like, does the God of the Old Testament command genocide and all these other sorts of questions? And what about Islam? And what about jihad? But for now, I just want us to see this. Holy Lord means holy land, means holy war. And Joshua bows down and worships this holy one with the sword drawn. And now, having been circumcised, having eaten the Passover meal, and having bowed down before the holy Lord, the spiritual preparatory obedience for the conquest is complete. And the conquest is about to commence. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the beginning of the conquest with the Battle of Jericho. But for us, um, this is a rich practical test. Uh, The text tells us that we are to live out the inward reality of circumcision, which we who've received Christian baptism have, have had sealed to us. The Apostle Paul says, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Israel had to be circumcised, and you have to be baptized and live out the reality of your baptism. And we must also, now that Christ our Passover has been sacrificed, we must celebrate the Passover feast with sincerity, for it is the first fruits of of the coming land of Canaan. It's the first fruits of the earth that the meek shall inherit. This is food from the future. And we do this. We live as those circumcised, as those who participate in the new covenant Passover. We do it under the command of the Holy Lord Jesus Christ, who's both the greater Joshua and he is the commander of the celestial armies the hosts of the Lord. And this Jesus, meek and mild, will appear with his own sword drawn. A two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth, as Revelation 19 puts it, with which he will slay his enemies and bring us to our everlasting inheritance. And this means that we are in a spiritual Not a military, to be sure, but a spirit-empowered, very concrete, very real, holy war. So, we're not going to do away with that terminology. Because the Bible doesn't do away with it. Our weapons, that's another militaristic term, are the gospel lived out in word and deed by the power of the Spirit. And the heart of this preparation, the heart of this training, renewal in this warfare, is baptismal union with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. That's why the circumcision occurs in this text. And a living communion with Jesus Christ in his body and blood, sealed to us at every celebration of the supper. The sacraments, then, are essential to the Christian life. The whole Christian life is lived out of these two realities. It's the the embodiment, the fleshing out of baptism and the supper, which simply is Christianity. 
So that in this way and in no other way, the Holy Lord is making us into a holy people fit to inherit a holy land. Amen. Amen.